But we've finally made this like real audio connection as opposed to the Twitter. You know, anytime I get to do pants optional publicity, I'm, I'm in. I know, and I it's usually something that I that I say because um like people are like, oh god, do I have to like have my hair done? Do I have to look like presentable like at a convention? I'm like, no. You can. <laughs> yeah, my my publicist tells me I have a great face for radio. Aw, untrue. I see your avatar, your darling. Well, you know, I had to hire that guy. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, you're one of those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I want to get mobbed in public, which is a total lie, of course. Everybody who is a creator, we all want to get mobbed in public. I mean, that's why we signed up for this stuff, right? Right. Unless you're J.K. Rowling and you need a break. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Which, you know, I completely understand. I mean, I, it's doubtful at that level that you she can't walk outside her door. I mean, let's face it. Yeah, and and so she's writing books under other names, and I'm, I I imagine that she probably has to hire the people. I, you know, she's got the money now that she could probably perfect and invest in some kind of body or mind swapping Freaky Friday technology, so she could actually go out and get an ice cream. Oh, see, I was just thinking that she could just hire a special effects artist, but okay, we can go techno. Well, she's got a billion dollars and probably some some access to some fairly decent uh, uh, grimoire, as it were, and and could whip something up. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, okay. well, except she gave away some of her money to charity, so. Yeah, but okay, there you are. You are the, the curator of the Bodleian Library in, the, in the, the weird old occult section. You get a phone call from Joe Rowling who says, I need a really old spell book so that I can swap brains with somebody. I can be in somebody else's body so I can actually go around in public um, and, uh, you know, go, go get a cup of tea. Go, go get a kebab somewhere without being mobbed. Um, you know, you're going to return that call. So when is that happening for you, Jordan? Well, um, they're still not returning my call, my calls, so I don't know this trajectory. Um, and, and my books are coming out for a goodly while because uh, the um, the fuse on traditional publishing, of course, is, is glacial, and the people are marvelous. So that's, that's one thing. They're they're lovely, and they really love books. And the timeline for conventional publishing. It's very long because they think in very long terms. So they're thinking, well, you know, we want some people are reading and enjoying these books 40 years from now, 60 years from now. So if it takes, you know, another year and a half before the title to hit shelves, then they're fine with that. Uh, and, but really the, what my, my hold up, it's not a hold up, it's just part of the process is that having handed off the manuscripts for book one, book two, book three, these are all being wonderfully, magnificently illustrated by this incredibly talented illustrator, and then it has to get to markets. And so it's going to be January of 2015 before really I'm anybody but this just guy living on this wet rock in the Pacific and raising children. Oh, and that's and I'm gonna be able to go. You know, back before he was anybody, I was like the first person to talk to him, <laughs> and he won't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll I'll have to work out some kind of signal now. Yeah. That then when there's a throng, most people can throw some kind of secret hand hand gesture or or Wollstonecraft gang sign. Yeah, I think I think that should happen. Escorted to the front of the line. We yeah, we need our um, you know, our. ID badges. 
Tattoos. Tattoos will always will always work. Ooh, that's true. We can have a specific mark, so we can all recognize each other. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the skull snake thing's kind of been done, but yeah. uh, we we can certainly riff off that for sure. Sure. We get we're, we'll uh we got a lot to play with there with the whole Mary Shelley and uh Ada Lovelace science things. There's so many places we could go to come up with a good graphic. Yeah, well, why don't we why don't we back up on that because some people are listening to your podcast because they come to you for your fabulousness and so you've got this guy you have no idea who the heck I am. Yeah, so, so let's talk about Wollstonecraft. Tell us what it is. Well, Wollstonecraft was a project that I had. I mean, I'm I'm a screenwriter. I've always been a writer and putting roof over my head with words uh, as a as an advertising copywriter, later creative director. And then as a screenwriter, I taught at Vancouver Film School, and uh, I worked as a writer for hire in the film industry for, for a number of years. And I kind of stayed away from long-form fiction um, because I'm lazy and there's a lot of typing. What I really love about screen screenwriting is the fact that there are no adjectives, the columns are skinny, the font is very big, and you can bash out the equivalent of a novel's worth of stuff in, a, in about 100 pages. Um, with a fraction of the words. So you have all the satisfaction of having completed something without having to actually push the keys down as often, which is, you know, the, the hardest part of writing, I find. So I'm pretty uh, terrible at typing, so I relate. You know, I, I, I took it in, in high school because I'm, I'm elderly, so we actually did typing as yeah. a class on, on IBM Selectrix. That, yeah, exactly. You know, like a lawnmower on your desk, you know, <laughs> Um, I was the only male in my class. There were a whole bunch of, of uh, young women who were told that they wanted to be secretaries when they grew up. And then there was me, uh, who got the, uh, I think the only reason why they passed me is, is out of pity, because I think my typing speed got to a whopping like, 38 words a minute or something. But um, you know, we all want to hear about that, right? We all want to hear about my typing speed. <laughs> You're high. It's riveting. Stuff. Really? Yeah, I don't know how you can tear yourself away from this story. <laughs> Um, I can tell you that that my my home row experience, the various typos I have committed, but alas, um, we'll move on. The, <laughs> like reality TV, right? I'm sorry, I was boring myself. Uh, <laughs> it's okay, I'm only 48 so, words per minute, so it's all right. So I was I was working. I uh, in I had an idea for a screenplay, and I was halfway through this thing, going, you know, this is totally unfilmable. Nobody's going to shoot this. Nobody's going to buy it. So I decided just to novelize it and quit Facebook, which was really the key. By leaving Facebook, it gave me all this time to and I was going to spend the time that I would spend on Facebook. I'll just spend it writing. So I wrote a novel in very short order, uh, seventy thousand words, seventy five thousand words in uh, in two and a half months. And then I was looking for the next project to novelize, and you know, I have this IP vault, which is what I call my desk drawer full of poster notes. Various uh, concepts that I've pitched over the years, and one was a, a, a treatment for an animated television series uh, called Wollstonecraft. And the idea was, what if we take Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer, and Mary Shelley, the world's first science fiction writer, and and we, we connect them. I mean, they do have a ligature. There's a connection in the fact that um, Ada's father was Lord Byron, and his best friend was Percy Shelley, who was Mary Shelley's later husband. Um, but there's a there's a, a modest degree of anachronism because they're actually 14 years apart in history, and I want to put these together as uh, as young teen girl detectives fighting crimes from 19th century literature, and so that was basically the pitch. <coughs> and 
So, okay, well, I'll, I'll move time around by about 11 years and, um, and really just pillage, uh, ideas and little plot twists and little literary jokes from Charles Dickens and Jane Austen and Brontes and, uh, uh, Wilkie Collins, who really becomes the impetus for the first mystery. And, and I didn't go anywhere as a, as a TV treatment. So I decided, well, I've got this, this concept. I'll, I'll novelize it. And I went onto Kickstarter. And I'm not, I don't even remember finding Kickstarter in the first place, but I thought that it would be a really interesting experiment in terms of, um, proving a market and reaching out to people who supported the idea. And I was really just looking for funds to, to pay an editor and, uh, and an illustrator. And was looking at a, at a one book knockoff and knockoff or knocking off one book. I'm not knocking off anybody else's book, but you know, do produce. <laughs> Sit down, write a thing, and it was going to be very, very simple and very straightforward. Uh, but the idea really got tremendous traction um, through the generosity and uh, seeing a crowd of people that could really imagine the project. Um, and I've said since that the key to successful crowdfunding is to start with an amazing crowd. And the people that are as turned on to these characters, to these actual historic young women who changed the world with their imagination and their intellect and their education, um, that, that gets me very, very excited. Um, the, there's a, 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 a kind of a, a currency to that. Literally, there's like an electric jolt. Uh, and other people respond to that as well, to this idea and the contribution that, that these two young women made as young women. Right. And it's hard enough to do that in the 21st century. And I say this as uh, a brother to sisters and a father of a daughter. And um, it's hard enough to do that now. But if you know, 1826 was like Saudi Arabia with bonnets. It was really not a place for the full... Uh, dimensional uh, aspirations of young women <laughs> in any unfettered well, sense. Yeah. Did you find, because one of the things that's pretty cool with the characters, the way that, that you've got them in the first book, is that uh, Ada Lovelace was a, a, you know, a lady. She was a child of privilege, whereas when Mary Shelley comes in, she's sort of like really in this, you know, fish out of water scenario with, you know, servants and people to, to tend to them at this, you know, big house. Right. So do you think that um, that class played a lot in people's ambitions that way? Like, you know, Mary Shelley was, she, she didn't have servants, ergo she had to learn to do certain things. Whereas, you know, poor Ada just, you know, she had these amazingly gifted parents and yet neglected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, neglected. Yeah. I mean, it's like each of the, the lineage that she comes from. I was just like, I, I wasn't sure, like, how much of it was fiction because, I, I mean, I just, so I went and I looked up. I'm like, okay, well, I know that he said that he changed the ages of them, but how much of this is real? And, right. um, and I love that you gave, you know, all sorts of detail on the back. That was really cool. Well, that's, of course, you know, part of my, my evil scheme, which is get people turned on to the, the idea to, to the world and then start exploring it on their own, look at the source material, look at the original literature, um, learn about uh, these young women and other uh, young women uh, of the same era and the contribution that they were making. And actually, as the, the series progresses, it's always wrapped around the impetus or the stone in the water for every case um, is a female scientist who's a contemporary of the girls 
Um, and and uh, there are just so many amazing uh, women that we don't know about because they're essentially buried under the history. And you talked about the class distinction between the two of them, which was certainly pronounced, um, but it's they're united in, in the in the face of the ambient sexism, which was much stronger um, than, uh, than than the classism was then. I think it's probably been reversed now. I think that classism is probably stronger than sexism. Um, but uh, yeah, at, at the time, the the commonality that they had was the fact that they weren't allowed to leave the house on their own. I mean, that was simply something that was never going to happen. Uh, and they need to enlist uh, other characters in order to to do the running around that they that needs to happen in the course of uh, of their adventures, right? Just to deliver the, um, you know, deliver the ad copy to the newspaper. That you know, they had to have a boy go do that, and right. um, you know, that's just something that's so uh, like unthinkable. But yet, in other countries, it's still like that. And um, but and if I can give young younger readers, particularly, a sense of you know, here's the distinction. Um, and what ends up happening is that both of these girls through different sources are forced to live in their head. I mean, one is with, with Ada, she lives in her head because she, um, is certainly what we would call today somewhere on the, on the Asperger's continuum. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, And, um, uh, and then with, with Mary just being so overwhelmed by, the, uh, the minutia of her daily life. She had a house full of uh, a, a very blended family. Um, there were you know, five kids in that in that house, and no two of them had the same parents. So it was a very it was a very modern family. But she was um, uh, as as the middle child was definitely kind of caught in that uh, just a, a whole layers and layers of expectations. I and mean, she certainly grew up in a very literary household. Um, and the, the phenomenal legacy of her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, who was really sort of the founder of Western feminism, um, and uh, uh, who died from complications from childbirth, so Mary never knew her, but she grew up in her mother's feminist shadow. Uh, her father was a publisher. Her stepmother was the largest children's literature publisher in England. Um, so she grew up in this very busy household, very bookish household, but it was definitely uh, the culture of letters turning inward. There's your liberation. You can't walk down the street unescorted, but you can escape inside a book. And uh, I love that. That's kind of the, the, the religious framing of the book. That's how people reconnect and restore and solve problems is that they, they grab a book. And that's where the answers are, uh, or the power of the written word and, and how liberating that is. And now what's, what's interesting is that our, you know, our means of outlets – today are things like online role-playing where it's sort of a combination where you have the storytelling of you know what would have been book authors and a lot of times it's all incorporated there are books that come from games etc etc but um but role-playing games seem to be like this fusion it's like you've got your high tech and your science and yet you've got your storytelling all mashed together with arts Mm -hmm. um and it's sort of this uh this like marriage of, of these two different worlds. Well, what was really interesting, I think, in terms of the philosophical position at the time and of, of that period of the Regency, of giving way to the, the Victorian era, the um, one is there's a lot of optimism to it. It's like, okay, we can innovate ourselves uh, out you know, into and out of any situation, which I think is, is certainly an important um, 
uh, process of naivete to go through. It's like, oh, it's all going to be so simple. We'll just solve all our problems by thinking. And, you know, that'll, that'll take you halfway, but it's a really important halfway to take. Yeah. Um, but the other is the, um, the, the absolute certainty of the role of imagination and abstracts and intangibles in science. And there was definitely in, in Ada's world, uh, a world of the, the, a ghost in the machine, that there was meaning, there was underlying, it certainly was a very, uh, ambiently Christian culture, um, the, the, the belief in God was a, was a certainty, um, but, and with that come, uh, ideas that other things of certainty as well, the dignity of the human person, uh, ideas of loyalty and creativity, these are actual, tangible objects in in the Regency world, and they apply to the sciences. And I think the, the big 21st century scientific debate is really about the meaning of meaning. Is there such a thing as meaning? Is there the intangibles of creativity and loyalty and love? And that science needs to be subservient to these abstract concepts, um, rather than just as complete stripped-down uh, materialist reductionism. So the, the framing of science in Wollstonecraft is uh, contemporaneous to that inclusion of abstraction with scientific reasoning. These things are not at odds. Um, it is not just mumbo-jumbo to say that meaning is an actionable thing. And that when you pursue science in the context of meaning, you end up coming with a, with a coming from a very... Um, ethical standpoint, a very holistic standpoint, and, uh, and, and marvelous things can happen. It doesn't just about, it's not just about, uh, bringing things down to some kind of disconnected mathematics. You know, math is, uh, a way of, it's, it's the music of the universe. It's a way of describing something, but, um, uh, that requires intuitive leaps, imaginative leaps. And we can't exclude imagination and intuition from the sciences, even from the art sciences. Well, there's lately, and I don't know, maybe it's just, you know, the power of social media, but there's just such a big push to get um, what they call the STEM uh, studies really, uh, I guess, more accepting for young women in t- to study those, those science, technology, engineering, and math. And... Um, I've seen a couple Kickstarters that uh, one of them I, sadly did not meet its goal, and it was about uh, a little girl who Grace from outer space. Grace from outer space. Yes, we love this project. Yeah, and it you know it didn't make its goal. So I was wondering what you know what what is the difference when we're talking about something like Kickstarter? Like you're working on novels, and um, first of all, tell us how. How far past your goal you ended up getting? Well, our initial goal was to raise four thousand uh, dollars, which we did in seventy-two hours, and by ten days into the campaign, we reached forty thousand dollars. And um, at the end of the campaign, which was twenty-seven days, we'd raised ninety-two thousand dollars, which makes it the uh, top-funded fiction project on Kickstarter, uh, or certainly at that point um, uh, to date. And uh, it wasn't until we started seeing some more interactive fiction um, projects that have, I think, quite wonderfully really blown well past that goal. But um, 
aiming for 4,000, hitting 92,000, uh, really just it proved that there is an interest in role models for young women around science, tech, engineering, and math. Um, the STEMinists, which are the women in STEM. I haven't heard that yet. That's awesome. Uh, yes, we're incredibly supportive um, and wanting to see this happen. And when when the when the marketplace and when um, the the audience points and says we want that, then the people in in distribution pay attention. So I started getting phone calls from toy manufacturers, film producers. Uh, every major publisher, uh, dozens of literary agents all wanting to kind of get in and, and, and see where they could steer it. And, um, I got some great advice, uh, and, uh, and use the, the money and the time to figure out really what's the best way to move this forward. Uh, not just as a franchise, but as, as a whole platform for the things about which I'm really passionate, which is uh, imagination and science that uh, feeding the natural curiosity of, of young people. Um, I, you know, I often say that young women, but obviously I think there's going to be a very strong uh, interest from boys as well. I grew up as a voracious reader in a household of sisters, and so I read Nancy Drew, I read Trixie Belden, I read uh, Black Beauty and Little Women, and so I, you know, I didn't feel uh, disenfranchised by reading uh, stories about stories with with female protagonists, um, and I don't think that boys do today either. Certainly, I don't think girls feel overly alienated by reading books with male protagonists. It's yeah. just when it's the exclusivity is an issue. Right. So, um, you know, kids, kids can imagine. And, uh, uh, I want to just fuel that imagination, give them tools and say, Hey, here's a kid just like you who was maybe quirky, loved reading, uh, liked to poke dead things with sticks and, uh, and just to see what happened and you can change the world as a result of that, uh, that line of inquiry. And, you know, that's what, what science is. And I have a little kind of sermonette at the end, um, when, uh, that's really about Mary doesn't think or doesn't see the the process of deductive reasoning uh, and criminology as a science. And Ada points out to her, it's like, well, we were just wondering and we we're asking questions and we were trying things and seeing what happened. And that's what science is. That's a hypothesis. And yeah, it's not just, we want to kind of bring it down to that science does not require a giant lab. It's not something for some for other people. It is a natural human reflex to create and to imagine, and it's a natural human reflex to experiment and ask questions and to observe and then ask more questions. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful message for, for young people saying, no, actually, you're already a scientist. You know, you navigate the world as a scientist. All babies are scientists. Oh, I've got this thing in my mouth. See what happens? Oh, I'm not dead. Okay, I'll try it again. Um, and good point. Sorry? I said that's a good point. Yeah. So it's, um, I just wanted to present that, you know, these concepts in a, in a context that would get kids excited, um, and, uh, and, and start looking up the rest of the stuff. I just keep going. So it's not the be all and end all. So you said that you're, um, you're a father of a daughter. What, what's your family life like? I mean, you grew up around all these sisters. So mm-hmm. what, you know, what's home like now, but especially for somebody who's a writer at home? Well, I live on a little artist colony island, which certainly makes it a whole lot easier to create when I'm not a weirdo. In fact, that uh, uh, 
uh, is the, the usual uh, go go to line when you're getting your groceries bag is how's your screenplay coming? You know, or um, I live on a little island with ten thousand people, a whole bunch of retired rock stars. Um, and, Sounds amazing. You know, Eckhart Tolle and Rafi. So. Uh, my wife is a painter. Um, my two older boys are grown, and they live on the island next door. Um, and but my son is eight. My daughter is now ten. And um, uh, so I, I write all day. My wife is in the studio all day with paintings, and the kids are running amok in the forest and on the beach, um, being little natural scientists. That just sounds like such a fairy tale. It doesn't, you know. It seems like. Um, I don't know, like very surreal that you're not getting up and leaving the house at six or seven in the morning to catch a train or drive for, you know, an hour, hour and a half to get into some office. And then you right. won't be home and you won't see your kids again until seven or eight o'clock at night. Well, I've always made a choice um, with with my first son that I was going to freelance and stay home and write so that I could, could stay home and, and raise the babies and change the diapers because that was kind of, that was my thing. That was my bliss. And um, I fortunately had a skill set that allowed me to do that. Um, so there is, uh, uh, you, you, you make different choices. Certainly living here makes it easier to to be a, a creative person and what the Kickstarter gave me the power to do was to take the time to really craft not just the first book, but the series and, um, and attract the attention of people that could really do the things which I couldn't do on my own, which is global distribution, multiple languages, um, uh, protecting the IP in a way that, um, uh, kept me in control of it so that it wasn't instantly, um, plasticized or simply used, uh, you know, it's not, not it's not just a shade of lipstick. It's not just a, a way to, to decorate um, any kind of existing mainstream product and, and kind of whitewash it um, with some kind of feminist gloss. I was very opposed to that. Um, and fortunately, I've got some, I'm working with some terrific people that really can see what this can mean to uh, to readers and that can sympathetically put themselves in in that time machine that we were talking about before we started taping that the 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 time machine of yourself as a young reader you know what would you want what would you respond to what would you want to have seen and that's the beauty of putting the thing in a time that isn't contemporary by putting it in the regency period um you know you could have read this 40 years ago you can read it 40 years from now so did you also like to write when you were a child other than reading constantly? Yeah, and I've been, like a lot of people, uh, like a lot of, of readers, I think the readers are, are natural writers. Um, and uh, that's has always kind of been a, a pathological problem for me. I've always been uh, addicted to writing. Like it's an illness. <laughs> no, if, if you're writing the same sentence over and over again in spiral-bound notebooks, then then it's pathological. Well, okay, fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> that, I, that may or may not have happened, and you know, it was it was a dark time for me. I don't want to go there. I'm sorry. It was my first heartbreak. I didn't I know have, what else to do. I have pills now. It's fine. <laughs> so, what? Um, yeah, I was going to ask you. So, what advice would you have given yourself? I mean, you obviously 
I guess for other people, they'd be like, you know, stick it out. Don't let the bullies get you. But um, depending on how you grew up, if you grew up in a in a more accepting sort of environment for being a weird kid, you know, a bookish kid, then, you know, maybe maybe you wouldn't have had any advice to go give your younger self. No, really, I think it just sort of stayed out of my younger self's way. Um, plus, there's that whole concern about a paradox that if I actually talk to my younger self, that I might just decide to pursue a career in Major League Baseball or something. I don't know. Not that I would be. I, I you male know, fashion I, modeling. Just a bad, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fashion. Um, so no, I just would have stayed out of my way. The, the paradox thing uh, kind of kind of wigs me out, but. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate by growing up in a very literary household, a household with, that was supportive of arts and inquiry. Um, living on the West Coast, certainly a very um, uh, small L liberal in, in the classic sense of the liberal arts and the appreciation for liberal arts. Little university town um, in in Victoria, and then uh, growing up in on the North Shore of Vancouver, which also has a great literary and, and artistic heritage, very connected with nature and season, and um, uh, also not having, having a Canadian culture and an American culture, these are very, very different things. You know, they don't seem all that different, perhaps, but, um, certainly in terms of the whole coming of age thing, it just seems to be kind of staggeringly different. Um, yeah, I, I think if you're, if you go to a high school that, I, I, we don't, we don't have showers in our high schools. That, I think, is one thing. <laughs> 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 um, and so we don't have football teams. You can't, you can't have a football team without a shower, so we don't have football teams. If you don't have football teams in high school, you know, it really does seem to change the landscape. I'm trying to kind of uh, pin it down, but I think there's a whole thesis there. Um, That's, I had no idea. You, yeah. don't, you don't have, but you have hockey, and you must certainly have. We don't have high school hockey teams. You uh, don't? No. It's not a thing. It's, there are you just, you, oh, you just play outside? Like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Schools don't do that, but. Um, so it's. Uh, it, it is a very different world growing up, um, but uh, I was just I was extremely privileged, extremely fortunate that I had access to uh, to, to literacy, to you know the the, the family um, culture was around the dinner table was well, what did you learn today? And if we didn't learn anything, we had to go look something up. If we couldn't think of anything, we had to actually go. So often my sister and I would hit the Britannica five minutes before dinner, look up a random fact uh, about well, roses or something. I kid you not, but by, by the time I got home, I couldn't remember what I had done in school that day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, there was definitely like, was a culture of inquiry and looking things up, and it became kind of comedic. Well, we're going to – I'm going to um, – sort of pose this to both areas of life, to the business area and to your just uh, non-business personal area of life. What are the hardest lessons you've had to learn since you seem to have um, had a remarkably accepting and well-adjusted um, youth? Then what what lessons have you learned? Well, I mean, the lesson that I should have learned earlier and that I'm – I'm still learning, I think, is one, is one of um, a humility that isn't limiting. That um, I, I, humility, certainly um, I was guilty and probably still am guilty of drinking my own Kool-Aid, um, but to just look at the at, at creative work um, for the joy that it is 
and to do it with uh, a humility that, that doesn't diminish your contribution to the work. So um, we have a, a kind of conception of humility in Western culture that is a kind of a false modesty, and that's pretty toxic. But an actual humility of just saying, wow, what, what I'm taking on is something that um, was was here before I got here and will be here after I die. Uh, so I have to kind of tend this garden um, while I'm, I'm here. And that's uh, to, to be part of a, a heritage of children's literature specifically. There's a, uh, a profound trust to that just to slow down and to appreciate, which is to make precious, uh, your interaction with it for the time that you have to do it. So if that's perspective. That's the hard lesson, for I think, for any creator. Um, it's like, well, I've created an entire world. I am a god now. It's like, but um, as soon as you have finished this, you hand it to a reader, and then they put it in their head, and something completely different happens. There's a, a chemical reaction that you have no control over, so um, you have to uh, you have to appreciate that interaction and and surrender to it. Um, well, this, so that, this, that's the thing. This brings me up to a really interesting question because uh, because I deal so much with comics. It's very different when you create something um, that's corporate. It gets passed down to different creative teams throughout decades of time, and if you're lucky, you've get the chance to, to work on that, and other people choose to simply work on only things that they own, only their own IP. So, um, But then we were talking about J.K. Rowling and how she does not let go of the Potter franchise for right. anything. So yet here you've created this Wollstonecraft, this particular version of who these people are, and your Kickstarter was phenomenal. So you've, you know, you've even referred to it as a franchise. That there's more stuff coming, you know, down the pipe than than just the books. Right. So, when all is said and done, are you going to be the type of creator that holds on to it, or would you consider saying, okay, this is now a corporate entity, like you know, like The Walking Dead has screenwriters, um, that you know, Kirkman is a consultant, right? Um, what would you do? Well, you know, um, I, I do like the showrunner approach, which says, you know, ultimately I have the final say, but uh, collaboration is, uh, is is marvelous. There are all kinds of people with great ideas uh, and great insights into character who want to take things off into a hundred different directions. We're living in the age of fan fiction where people are kind of writing as fast as they're reading, and I think that that's wonderful um, because they want to make their own contribution. They want to, you know, you create a space and people want to play in that space. So I'm I'm very welcome and exception to that. But in terms of um, of Wollstonecraft, no, I'm not going to abandon it to another room full of writers um, because I I do maintain that creative control and I think it's important because I have a very specific vision for what this is and what it can be and um, uh, and I'm not prepared to let go of that. That doesn't preclude anybody else from going and creating their own thing. But you know, as long as it says Wollstonecraft on it, um, that it's it's going to be, uh, if, if in the future there are Wollstonecraft lunchboxes, those are going to have to be pretty cool lunchboxes. Yeah, well, I imagine that they'd sort of, like, have secret compartments and you push a button. And exactly. <laughs> Building spy kits, or at least, you know, something for collecting specimens and, you know, some kind of Swiss Army knife component. Exactly. So where is the franchise 
going? What are these other things that that um, were stretch goals, if you will, from the Kickstarter? Well, the, I mean, the really biggest thing was that there were going to be more books. Um, and there are things which I'm going to give to my, my backers that are releasing for free, things like I'm doing a, a short story set in the same world. Um, I'm doing a teacher's guide. You can see the, the kernel of that is actually in the back of the Kickstarter edition, which we released. Um, and, and keep building on keep building on to the world and making it larger. Um, I signed with Knopf, which is a division of uh, Random Penguin, uh, that they'll be distributing the first three books globally and in multiple languages, uh, and those will be out in January of 2015. uh, uh, Which is great, because it, it puts me in front of a larger audience and puts those ideas in front of a much larger audience. And that's the part that's that's really exciting. That does seem really exciting. Um, you know, when you get to see the proof of the the cover of your book and it's in another language, it, you know, the designs are different and everything. It's just uh, I've noticed that my friends that have had that that excitement happen, and it's really cool. Yeah, if I can connect with a reader that um, I simply I couldn't connect with otherwise because they're reading the thing in Hungarian or Finno-Ugaric or, uh, <laughs> or or Sanskrit. I think I think a Sanskrit edition would be cool. I think it's translated to Latin too. Um, but uh, connecting with readers that I couldn't possibly reach otherwise, um, that's, that's the thing that that cork print distribution machine does extraordinarily well. Um, the people who work in that industry are very passionate about it. Um, they are, are marvelously lovely people, and that's what that's what makes them happy. That's what they want to do. So they're going to be running with that. So you know, I consider that to all be on the on the team to kind of preach the gospel of of, of young women and, and science and imagination. Well, I don't know if you saw the the news that Pakistan has a new female superhero called the Burqa Avenger. <laughs> and she's, um, I believe, from what I what I read, I think it was on CBS that uh, she's a school teacher. And when the girls' school is threatened to be shut down, she basically starts not not fighting crime. I don't think in the way that we think of Batman fighting crime, but it, but she um, takes it upon herself to make sure that uh, the people that want to close down the school, the men that want to close down the school, so she keeps it open somehow. And I think that's a, um, it's, it's something that's taken for granted. Like our, we have students who drop out not realizing that, you know what, in some other place you might not even have been allowed to go. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, I feel the same way with you know, people who don't vote, but it's, um, uh, I, I think that whole uh, Brick Avenger thing is just marvelously subversive. <laughs> it <laughs> could you, be. You, you take these symbols that um, people outside that culture interpret in a very specific way. They see it in a, a specific lens, and they make they associate value judgments with it. And then to kind of take that symbolic response and mess with that, I think that's um, I think that's kind of the purpose of art. I love how punk rock that is. <laughs> okay, you think this means this? I'm going to make it mean something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's that's great. I, I always appreciate a good good shit disturbance now and again. <laughs> Do you have any trouble at all separating a creator from their work? Like, um, especially like when it comes to something like politics or um, scandal, anything like that. 
Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, um, because I, I acknowledge that part of the creative process is outside of the creator. There, there, um, that there are signals and stories that are we're, we're swimming around in, and occasionally they'll glom onto somebody. Uh, and they don't ask questions about that person's uh, gender or status or political opinions, and sometimes that story will push so hard through somebody that, sure, that they can color it, or, and then that the creator may, may profit from it, but um, often the stories are, are almost uh, what Jung called splinter psyches, the kind of discarnate third-party entities, ideas that are that become so tangible they may as well be, you know, mysterious creatures. So... Um, the, uh, the the idea of ownership of story, uh, or that the story is solely you, know, you talk about something like J.K. Rowling. Well, I mean, a, a hundred people from uh, Ursula Le Guin and The Worst Witch. There are so many uh, versions of that story in in literature and popular culture before she got around to doing her particular spin on it. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, Shakespeare was doing the same thing. This isn't a criticism. <laughs> so, um, if uh, if a really good story happens to appear to somebody that I can vehemently disagree with, um, whose name might rhyme with Orson Scott Card, then um, <laughs> you know, could happen. Could happen. Somebody whose name rhymes with that, um, who who may be a, a, a great storyteller. Um, but who personally has, you know, I, I, people can disagree with me. I can disagree with somebody. Um, but that doesn't mean that I, I, I can't appreciate some other aspect of their lives. You know, we're all messy, uh, contradictory humans. And sometimes we do things that are marvelous and sometimes we do things which are, are, are ghastly or inadvertently hurtful or overtly hurtful. But, um, you know, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm certainly not beyond criticism. Um, and, uh, I saw a lot of stupid things on the internet. <laughs> it's been listening to me for most of my adult life. So, um, uh, so no, I really have no problem, uh, if I find out that somebody's a total schmuck and yet they've created something that I enjoy, I'll still enjoy it. Well, what the, one of the most recent things that I saw is that, um, I follow the actor Jim Beaver on Twitter. And he had a, a fan, or a, you know, former fan anyway, tell him that uh, this, they could no longer support his work because of his liberal politics. And mind you, so you know, and I follow a lot of liberals, but at the same time, I follow Adam Baldwin a lot of times just for shits and giggles. Um, but so, so Jim Beaver wrote this very lengthy response, um, and. You know what he had he had prefaced it with that um, since the person had sent this very very um, polite and eloquent email to him and he had responded to the to that email but he wasn't going to post that person's message but he posted his reply to it and he said um, you know I don't know what you mean by not supporting my work uh, I'm an actor I'm doing a job and uh, if you mean that you're not going to you know watch my shows, then you have to also understand that there's cast members and crew members that do not share my politics, and you're punishing them as well. So, you know, like you said, there's collaboration, and then there's, you know, truly feeling so strongly about something that you just can't do it. Um, Like, I don't don't listen to Rush Limbaugh. I'm never going to. (laughs) Um, 
You know, so it's just it's interesting how yeah, Orson Scott Card is like the the biggie. That's that's the one that we're all talking about these yeah, days. But it does come, but it does come up in in smaller things. You know, like Adam, you know Adam Baldwin um, and Jim Beaver apparently, who you know I, I don't think of as nearly as famous as you know as Orson Scott Card. But you know, the the one thing I, I think is really interesting about that Orson Scott Card thing, I'm gonna weigh in this because everybody wants to know what my opinion is because it's so precious. Of course we do. Uh, <laughs> I love podcasting. It's like, what am I, you know, I'm here. It's, it's, it's about you. I think that, um, you know, I, 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 I read his statements. I had my own response, um, and, uh, which I didn't share, but, you know, I, I was just trying to understand where he was coming from, I was trying to understand the controversy, and I was really trying to kind of hear him out. And of course, I reached, a, I, I reached my own conclusions, which would be different from the conclusions that he would support. But I thought the one thing that was, was very interesting is that uh, his, his post where he said, you know, essentially, the war is over, and I lost, um, and now let's see how nice everybody's going to be about that. And, and I, I thought that was just interesting. I don't know what necessarily motivated him. I'm not going to read anything in, into his, his motives, but I think that does say, you know, here was an issue. Um, the rest of the world, I mean, certainly America is still in the grip of it, for sure. Uh, most of the world has moved on um, from that particular issue, considered to be a non-issue. Um, and the question is, how are we going to treat people who disagree with us? Um, and uh, and I, I think that there's the response of reason and compassion. Um, and just... Uh, and, and, and moving on, I, I think if somebody you know, down the block has got some kind of crazy, whether they're a conspiracy theorist or they don't think that, that, that black and white people should be allowed to marry, um, you know, I, I, at, at what point do we just dismiss these people as harmless old cranks um, yeah. versus I know, our, our political enemy? Yeah, um, well, that's the difference. Is the, the difference is how he does... Um, sit on the board of, you know, the National Organization of Marriage or whatever the heck it's called. And um, so he literally is like a political pundit, whereas other people are just like, hey, I'm entitled to my opinion and I'm going to vote my way. And I think the rest of us are be like, absolutely. Everybody's allowed to vote, vote their way. But he's one of these people that's like, you know, seriously, actively aggressive and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Um... But you're up in Canada where apparently everything's better. <laughs> well, we certainly do have our problems. We certainly have, uh, you know, we have racism, we have injustice, we have economic injustice and poverty, we have ambient sexism, we have um, classism, we have a, a, a government that was uh, voted in as a minority that treats themselves like a majority, and, um, you know, we, we, we have the tar sands up here, we're killing the planet quite merrily, so, you know, we have our, we got our own stuff to work, to work out, so I don't, I tend not to weigh too deeply into the politics of other countries, because, you know, we've got our own mess here at home. Um, that being said, it is a different culture, and we have moved on from a lot of the, the core debates that seems to define American politics, um, the, this is stuff that we, we dealt with, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, whether it's, um, uh, abortion or marriage equity or gun control. These are just things that, you know, we just, we, we've solved these problems. We've moved on. We're fine. We got others. We're on, we're on to the next thing now. Well, let me just say from the bottom of my American heart, thank you for Nathan Fillion. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah, you're, you're welcome. So <laughs> we, we just need him back later. Um, maybe when I'm done, maybe or we'll retire there. <laughs> All right. After the wedding. Um, so when I, when I was reading Walson craft and there was, uh, 
thinking about Ada Lovelace building this hot air balloon on the top of her house, it did take me back to my childhood where I was one of the kids who liked to like build forts around the house. Right. Uh, I wasn't so good at, at building them in the trees. We did have one in the tree that was ridiculously dangerous. I had no idea how old it was. Um, at some point, there was just no way of getting up there. But I would go under the dining room table, and the way that the legs of the table were, I sort of, it was like a really uncomfortable hammock because there were these wooden claw legs, and yet I would just, you know, recline in there. And I would look up at the bottom of the table, and it was just sort of like my, just like a movie screen in my brain where, I don't know, it was just like space and, and anything was possible as long as I was under the dining room table and tucked in like a cave because of all the chairs and the tablecloth. So, um, you know, great places in fiction like Ada's Hot Air Balloon or even Hogwarts, you know, any of these wonderful places, did you ever have a fictional place that uh, if somebody granted you a wish right now to go to one of them, where would you go? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I grew up kind of in the mean streets of Narnia, uh, you know, there there we go. right? So, um, yeah, there were so, whether it's the, the Batcave or the Avengers Mansion, um, that idea of having your own space that you can control when your child is very liberating, because you're, in, you're navigating somebody else's space all the time. You're navigating your, your home and, you know, the, that wall is that color because somebody else decided it was going to be that color. Um, and, uh, and maybe your bed is in this corner and that, your bookcase is in that corner because somebody else decided that. So that, that sense of ownership of space and, and hacking geography, uh, is, has a really powerful appeal to, uh, I, I think to all, to, to all young people. You know, we're, we're nest building creatures. Um, and there's a, there's that kind of wonderful rush of, like, it's my first apartment, except you're having it when you're six, and you're doing it under the dining room table. Exactly. Uh, so I, I really wanted to honor that by giving Ada um, uh, a space where, and we know that's a point in the book, um, by by showing the appreciation that she has for her having her refuge, and then to see that refuge threatened, um, certainly brings up uh, the, the, the dramatic temperature. And for her, what's interesting is that basically because she was, really neglected by, by yes. her mother, that she has this huge, giant house. Literally, she can, you know, she has the run of the whole house anyway, and she still felt the need as a kid to have something that was hers that she felt like she constructed, and it was her own, you know, sanctum sanctorum. So, and you've got, you know, you live off on an amazing island where it sounds like the whole place is like that. Yeah, it really, it really is. I'm pretty spoiled out here. That sounds so epically cool. <laughs> um, so, do you have anything playing in the background when you're writing? Uh, you know, I, not when I'm writing, but I do when I'm editing. Um, and uh, and my tastes are are wildly eclectic. I'll be listening to. Uh, uh, oh, like last week, I was listening to some Mahler, and uh, so you know, this is very overwrought. Um, German classical music, and then um, for other edits, I was listening to KLF, so '90s acid house. So um, yeah, editing requires noise. Most of my writing just requires buzz. I tend to write um, either in bed with a laptop, or I just take the laptop and go to a cafe. I like I like clatter and so something about this, the sound of forks on on stacked plates. I find very conducive to writing. 
That's pretty cool. Because um, some, it, it's amazing how varied that can be for people. How they need something very loud blasting in their ears. I was uh, uh, remembering Stephen King saying that I think it's like his the same thing, like his first draft. He has to have like this loud heavy metal music blasting and whatever door closed and he's isolated and it's like a a noise cocoon as well. And then when he's going back to you know to take a second third or fourth pass at something it's completely different right yeah you, because you do need a, a way to uh, remind your brain that these modalities are different you need to change the channel of, of your thinking because when you're when you're creating or the story is flowing through um you're uh, I think all writers, you tend to respond to the the idea, you get the look for the idea, there's the musicality of the word, but when you need to change gears and become a little more uh, of, a, of a technician, you're looking at the craftsmanship. Am I building this? Am I delivering this character? I've introduced this character. I haven't seen anything from them for 40 pages. You know, you need to be much more objective about the work while you edit. So, um, you know, Hemingway said, write drunk, edit sober. And, you know, the same thing applies musically, I think. So what are the what sorts of things do you like to read now? Um, uh, well, right now I'm researching um, a book that I'm writing next year after I finish Wollstonecraft Book Three. So I'm on a pretty aggressive writing schedule. Um, I've finished the final edits for the Random House version for the Knopf version of Book One, um, and now I'm editing Book Two. I have Book Three to deliver by the end of the year, which gives me kind of next year. Um, uh, that's fairly open in terms of my schedule. So I pitched uh, a, a book set in the 1680s in France. So uh, I'm, I'm doing lots of um, source material, source research there. Uh, the last um, pleasure reading I did was uh, Gaiman's Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is just delicious bit of writing, very poignant. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it. I, I was very close to picking it up the other day, and instead I passed on it and went for um, a noir, crime noir book instead. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, I, I, found it, I found it very heartbreaking growing up. Um, certainly, as even though I, I grew up in Canada, I grew up as a little English kid, but my, my, my parents immigrated. And um, so a lot of his references to an English childhood were very, very close to my own. Um, uh and, you know, we're of a similar, we grew up in a similar era. So his little cultural references, I found just very I- immediately kind of poignant and, uh, you know, the worldview of him as a seven year old, very similar to my own. And, um, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes you read a book and it's, and it's laying you bare. And that's, uh, uh, I definitely had that experience. Uh, but I read, um, uh, Kraken, uh, China Amiibles. Uh, excellent urban fantasy, um, gonzo bit of craziness. Really enjoyed that. Um, but so that before that, I read a book on um, John Dee's Anakian magic from the uh, uh, 16th century. So, because um, uh, that's a really interesting worldview that I, I definitely want to play with as well. Yeah, I and there's there are lots of ways that you can incorporate that depending on what kind of writing projects you're working on as well, and you're obviously well-versed in it to begin with. So I, I love history. I think that's really the, the, the giveaway there is that I, I like to, um, and I don't know if I'm, I'm not going to stop myself or, or, or declare that I'll never write something on another planet, but I think that um, this planet is really interesting, 
I, I picked a really good one. And uh, there are uh, so many fascinating attempts at modernity. You know, we, we always sort of feel like we're at the end of history. Oh, here we are now. Well, you know, we've, we've tried all of the things which we're trying now before with varying levels of success, sometimes with uh, uh, a greater degree of success than we've accomplished now. Um, but most are arguably and, and quite patently less so. Um, but the idea of uh, Elizabethan England is, is really interesting. It's a great it's a great space to, to wander around in for story. Um, and getting a sense of that worldview, that, you know, this idea that here's this scientist who's sitting down and he talks to this guy who stares at, uh, at a hunk of glass and is talking to, he's sort of babbling and says he's talking to angels, but when you actually reconstruct the thing, there's actually a coherent language here with a, with a, a, a logic to it and a grammar and, you know, it's, um, this is certainly a, a very strong degree of, um, uh, cryptography, science codes, the, the fact that the guy was a spy. I mean, it's just a really great whole can of worms to open up. Yeah, I've barely even scratched the surface on any of the, uh, of that. And it's, what's cool is when, um, when it starts to come over into other areas of, of entertainment and people are exposed to things and they didn't, they don't even know that these are like genuine metaphysical studies. And, um, you know, when I think about things like John Constantine and Hellblazer, it's, right. um, it's like, yes, I'm sure a considerable amount of that was drug induced, but, <laughs> but, you know, let's just go with the fact that, you know, this is fiction that has the war of angels in it. And it's awesome. And, um, it's just, it's really cool when that happens anywhere. And, uh, something that I sort of, I don't know if maybe cable, like, doesn't run these documentaries anymore or whatever happened, but there used to be really cool documentaries uh, about, like, you know, like, mysteries of the Bible and stuff like that. And they, one of them showed the, basically the evolution of what today we call the devil and how, you know, we think about like John Milton and stuff, how it was this more monster creature. Old tapestries had this creature painted like a blue demon and then somewhere along the line changed to red and then it became more, you know, like the half goat creature. And now when we look at like today's presentations of the devil, it's always like somebody that's like so handsome and there to tempt you and bring you all of your desires and, um, it's just, it's really interesting how the fiction of it, you know, takes on its own life. Well, that's why I think comics are, are so important, because what they show are a, a shorthand, you know, instant shorthand. Like, if I want to talk about, um, you know, the idea of temptation, or do something you shouldn't be doing, or um, uh, even this, this, the, the idea of duplicity, then, you know, I'm, I'm going to... I can do it in one frame. I can show a pointy, you know, red guy with a pointy chin and a goatee uh, and, and, and arched eyebrows, and suddenly we know what we're talking about. So I can use, uh, you know, this this visual shorthand for a very complicated idea. 
Um, and, you know, this is the, the whole idea behind any kind of pictography. Certainly hieroglyphs are, are done exactly the same way. All religious iconography um, comes from that. Now, all pop culture iconography comes from that. Like, and I can show you a grumpy cat and convey... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So you know we we're, we're doing the same thing, and I think that that um, comics give us a kind of a visual literacy through culture, give us uh, cues to navigate uh, cultural signals, because there's such an education in this visual shorthand. Now, speaking of comics, do you get to any comic conventions? Because I know Canada's got a fair share, and there's also like ones not probably you know still travelable for you, like Emerald City and stuff like that? Well, um, certainly the... Um, I, I did uh, Kamikaze in L.A. last year. I didn't get as much traveling done this year as I had originally anticipated, simply because of my writing schedule. Um, that being said, I mean, in the last year I've been to San Francisco, twice Seattle, twice Portland, three times New York, um, and, uh, so, uh, some of those, yes, um, I, yeah, I like doing cons. I think that it's, it's just great to, to meet people and to, uh, uh, connect and particularly on the Kickstarter side, you know, I've probably helped out on about a hundred Kickstarter campaigns, either in person or, or via email or, or Skype where, um, I can, can see some potential challenges, um, I'd really love to see Grace from Outer Space um, rework her campaign and, and try again um, at a different price point because I think that that was a really important project that, uh, that didn't get the traction that it deserved. Um, but I, I think there are ways to make it succeed. Right. But, um, you know, Kickstarter is definitely a community. It's a social network. I've always seen it as that. And I have a tremendous debt to the people that, that backed this project. And so... Um, you know, if, if you've got a Kickstarter and you really want my uh, my, my drive-by opinion, I'm I'm uh, I'm off- offering been offering that for uh, for over a year now, um, and and I really enjoy collaborating, just seeing the creative energy and the creative opportunities of uh, of, of so many different uh, coming from so many different angles. Certainly the stuff that's going to appeal to me is, is um, stuff for kids, particularly older kids. We tend to really lose kids in, in middle grade. There's some great, I mean, there are a million great picture books. Um, there's some really good early reader stuff. And the YA uh, channel has been been extremely robust in recent years with some great successes that have been fueled more, more YA properties. And But where we tend to really lose people particularly girls as readers, is in that um, 8 to 12 range where we're uh, either handing them, we're still handing them picture books or we're handing them YA material. And um, uh, so uh, middle grade is such a, a really rich field for storytelling. And I also think, also think it's really interesting from a STEM side that if you ask uh, an 8-year-old girl what she wants to do, she wants to become a doctor, and you ask this 12-year-old girl what she wants to do, she wants to become a nurse. Which is certainly no slight on nursing as a profession, but there is this kind of cultural idea of, of diminishment. Now, yeah, I think that there is a definite big difference. It goes from kiddie books into teen romance. And not to say that you can't be 10 years old and, you know, and exploring that world of, you know, oh, I want my first boyfriend or I want my first girlfriend. Obviously that's there, but there, 
there does seem to be like, what do you fill that with? Like, what does a 10 year old think of? It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty cool, but I'm hoping that, you know, in 2015 or whatever that you, you know, you make it out to, to something like BEA right. in New York. Where is your publisher? Is, uh, uh, well, it's, it's uh, it, uh, random houses. So it's in New York. Yeah. Okay. Everybody's in New York. My agent's in New York. I mean, that's pretty much the kind of the capital of the literary world. So right. that's where everything happens. That's really cool. So, I mean, you know, meanwhile, you're chained to your desk and writing. <laughs> well, it's, no, it's uh, my my desk is can be my 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 deck <laughs> or a uh, local coffee shop. But um, uh, so I, I don't feel all that chained. So it's, I, I'm I'm, cert- I'm certainly not complaining. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty uh, awesome. But uh, I think that we're living in such an incredible time for creators. Um, because of the, the the change in distribution, and we've seen the change in capitalization, so that somebody can actually take a month off to finish their album or to finish their movie or to pay for post-production on a film that they shot two years ago that's just been sitting there. Uh, and that there are niche markets for content that can reach people who are really going to appreciate it and, and contribute to it and inspire more art out of it. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan, a huge fan of, of what crowdfunding has done, not just for me as a creator, but what's done for me as uh, as a fan. Yeah, I, I agree because I'm, you know, I've discovered some pretty cool things, you know, like like yours. I mean, it's these are things that I might not have come across otherwise. Yeah, and um, it's uh, also educating the distribution channel that um, center mass may not be where they think it is. <laughs> so yeah, that's if, true. Um, if you're, when you're looking at, uh, at Hollywood over the last 10 years, where the majority of uh, box office receipts have come from comic derived properties. Um, first it was just a, a kind of a lip service. It's like, okay, well we'll just, uh, we'll, you know, let's just make a Hulk movie. Um, and some, I guess some people will show up and buy popcorn, um, to taking the thing very seriously, which turns into the commercialization. Uh, I was always a commercial industry. The whole purpose from, from the get go was always to, to, to sell books and then sell stuff. But, um, I mean, San Diego Comic Con is the largest entertainment industry Entity in the world um, is bigger than the Oscars. <laughs> so uh, I d- yeah, I did read about that. How Hall H is like seats more people than the Academy Awards. Yeah, and uh, and in terms of the money and the attention and and the and the impact um, uh, by going directly to the fans and saying what kind of content do you want, and it's and it has. You know, the response is that we want smarter content, we want more challenging content, we want more diverse content uh, than uh, that has been on the receiving end of the distribution channel. You know, the, so the stuff that comes out at the end of the pipe is not necessarily the stuff that we want. And um, the distributors are listening, and they're being sh- shaken up because of alternate distribution methods. Uh, and uh, there's always going to be a market for things that may not appeal to me and that's fine that doesn't threaten me in any way but uh, what we're seeing now is such a tremendous diversity in content that that's you had to really kind of hunt and, and and gather for it's now getting the attention of corporate distributors that are saying hey there's a way to actually 
bring things which we haven't previously or undiscovered gems or taking some kind of narrative risk or um, representing people from different walks of, of life. And I'm, you know, I say this as uh, as a straight white guy, um, you know, I appreciate different perspectives in my fiction. <laughs> uh, not everything Absolutely. is written by people who look like me or about people who look like me. So I, you know, I, I read to exercise my imagination and I want to see diversity in the content that I have. Um, and the fact that it's now easier to find and to get and to recommend and refer and, you know, click and there it is on my iPad and I'm reading it, uh, I, I think is, um, uh, is, is really promising and it's just creatively just so much juicy. But talking about Comic-Cons and conventions in general reminds me of the recent Jim Hines harassment policy that he basically declared that he would not be going to a convention unless it had a very defined policy. And if they took sexual harassment seriously, that, you know, that their policy was posted places that people could see and that if anything was reported, that it would um, that there would be corrective action immediately. And it's. it's one of the things where, like, sort of like, well, duh, don't conventions have this? But I guess they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it was, wasn't malice. It was just oversight. Um, and uh, it's just uh, raising awareness that this is something which is happening in a, in a fan community, and here's a way to fix it. And that's a two-second fix, so let's fix it. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't seen any, any opposition to that. I've certainly, as somebody who's you know, produced events, um, uh, we've, I've never done that in the past. I've never said, here's a harassment policy, um, because I just, you know, first off, um, wasn't aware that it was happening. Um, I've never been aware that anything has happened um, at, at anything that I've, I've been at, and certainly if it was, you know, common sense can prevail. There's, there's, uh, a way to go and, and and address those those issues, but those aren't um, those aren't preemptive. And so if somebody comes along and says, you know, this stuff surely should be preemptive. Well, that's a pretty hard thing to argue with. And you go, of course it should be preemptive. I didn't think of that. Right. Thanks for thinking of that. So you know, I I, I see that as um, uh, people bring some common sense to uh, uh, to something which is. Uh, uh, a, a, a very credible and serious issue. Here's a way to fix it. Great. <laughs> um, but you you also just mentioned diversity in your own reading, and something that I read on Chuck Wendig's blog, which was Terrible Minds, was he he obviously has a lot of uh, friends in friends in publishing, and you know, female friends who happen to be writers or publishers or agents, and he always gives like really great advice and he, he always does it with um, just telling it as it is. And he says, get up and go look at your bookcase. If your bookcase, if all of the books in there are dudes just like you, <laughs> then you need to start branching out in what you're reading. Right. Um, so it's really cool to hear that you say that that's, you know, you just, you need that you do and you know and very often i i lose the concept of who the creator is like um lillian jackson braun was one of my favorite authors of all time and kept forgetting it was a woman writing the the cat who series because her character was a male protagonist and she wrote him so well um 
I just kept forgetting. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a woman. And same thing with Agatha Christie. I mean, you know, she had Miss Marple, but she had Hercule Poirot. Um, it just didn't just didn't come through, uh, the, like, why the gender of the creator would matter. But it matters. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I credit um, both authors and readers with imagination. Um, and so when I talk about the diversity, I'm, you know, it's, it's more diversity of character and, and viewpoint. Um, you know, I, I, any, I think that any creator can write from any, from any perspective. Um, I, I don't think that anybody needs any permission to go and write a character that's, uh, from a, a background outside of their own. Um, that's what imagination is for. And, um, but when, uh, uh, I, I think that it has been, cons- what I was talking about specifically was the perspective of what's, uh, what's commercially viable. And commercially viable used to mean a very narrow channel of presentation of character. And that commercial viability has now been proven that a diversity of character um, and perspectives is a, we're just giving audiences and readers specifically a lot more credit that they're not going to run away simply because this character happens to be from a different background or a different perspective um, of their own. Yeah, we um, I, we talked about that with my interview with Eric Rubin, who's a literary agent, and he um, mostly represents uh, romance writers and some erotica writers, and it's you know we had. We had to figure, you know, ha- have the discussion about when is a mystery just a mystery and when is it an LGBT, <laughs> you know, where does it get shelved? And, you know, and he's like, it's all about the characters. It's all about how important that is. Is this a character who happens to be, you know, who happens to be gay and that's just that's just the B story, whereas the main part of the story is, you know, maybe her her solving a crime or something. Um that's and that's part of the relationship that you have with your agent is making sure that everybody is on the same page and you all um, understand what the character is about and what where the story is going in, in the first place to get that sort of diversity in there. And one of the cool things that he said, you talking about your iPad, um, Eric had said, uh, you know, it brings the accessibility to markets perhaps where. Um, you know, like maybe someone doesn't feel comfortable going into a gay-friendly bookstore. Sure. Um, or if you're a teenage kid and you've got nowhere else to go and you can't possibly ask your parents, hey, I want to get this book, you know, can I can I have, you know, ten bucks or something like that? And they'd question, oh, my God, what is this? Why do you want a book with a shirtless man on the cover? Right. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's the whole issue of, of, uh, of, of cover shame. <laughs> uh, but that's been a... Uh, again, that's the, that's been the middle layer. You know, there's there are authors that have the story in their head. There's readers that want that story, want to connect that story, and want to put it in their heads. And there's been an infrastructure in the middle that's made all kinds of value decisions about viability and um, and therefore have dictated the market. And they've dictated what the author can sell and dictated what the what the reader can buy. And by creating a diversity of channel. And being able to do and and run, I mean, there's been I, 
most of it's crap, of course. And most of the stuff that just goes out that, that people put out there is crap, but most of everything is crap. So, um, <laughs> so we're just going to say that. Right? It's okay that, it, that most of it is crap. Um, so some, which means that, that some of it is definitely not crap, some of it is really good, and that, um, it shows the, the people that have been in that middle layer in the past that there, that there is actually a commercial viability to a diversity of voices and diversity of perspectives. So, um, that, that machinery in the middle layer, which again is, is made by very sincere people who are, who are very passionate about books, passionate about reading, um, and, and want good stories to be told, uh, have the ability now to take more risks with, um, the, the massive investments that they make, uh, in getting the book to market. And, and uh, so I, I think that's terrific. I think it's just going to get a lot, um, just a, a whole lot more interesting. You know, a lot, a lot more flavors, um, more opportunities for creators, uh, exposure to different uh, ideas for readers, uh, a chance to blow some minds. And I, you know, that's a, that's a total win-win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's always progressing, and it's good that we're you know we're learning from our mistakes. I think. I don't know if it's always progressing, but it's always changing. Changing. Yeah, true. Changing. So, you know, at least it's not going to get boring. Or if it does get boring, it's not going to stay boring. But in in our world of, you know, instantly being able to get our own voices heard somehow, you might not find as big of an audience as you want. You might not make any money off of your voice, but... You know, but it can be done if you say, hey, I, you know, I want a, a story of this or I want a music that's like this. I mean, you can, you can create today and you can get it out there somehow and, you know. So, so you're not podcasting this from your private jet? Um, it is my invisible private jet. Okay. Excellent. It, it is. I have, you know, absolutely. I'm, you know, but I'm, I'm absolutely in, you know, safe airspace, not to worry. There's no drones in. Uh, I always had to. I had to wonder about you know Wonder Woman's invisible jet. It's like she just looks like she's sitting down. She's sitting down. She's why was she sitting down? Which is you know it's smarter, it's more comfortable than the kind of Superman ironing board kind of thing that he's doing, um, or Thor having to whip the hammer around the whole time, which you know we definitely get your arms tired. But Wonder Woman looks just like yes, we can't see the plane, but we can see her. She's just sitting down. So what was what was really weird was like as a kid when I watched that. I um I thought that they were only showing her sort of like just so that you weren't looking at, you know, a blue <laughs> blue screen with clouds flowing by. Was I thought that we were supposed to imagine that she was also not visible. Yeah, I was I I also wonder if that's a if that's a, a cue. Like this is what you're seeing, but what you're supposed to be seeing or what you'd actually be seeing. Yeah. But you know, um with with um the invisible woman she invisible. was oh, she was outlined, she was like, you know, like yeah. perforated edges. Yeah, they should have done something more like so, that. So I don't know. I know, but it's awesome. There's a, there's always a Wonder Woman debate every day. There's a new Wonder Woman debate going on. You know, I Wonder Woman is actually my favorite um, uh, comic character, um, and uh, I would love to do I'd love to do Wonder Woman. I've had ideas for for Wonder Woman stories for years, um, and, uh, and and some people have asked me. So, well, do you just always want to do your own stuff, or as as certainly as the the, the work gets more traction. Um, and as somebody who's, who's been a writer for hire and worked on other people's IP, you know, do, would I now just want to work on my own stuff or would I, uh, 
would I work on a pre-existing property? Which is a great interview question, by the way. So thanks for asking that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to interview myself. That's what I do. Um, but Wonder Woman is really the only one that would really appeal to me because I, I think that um, as a character, uh, there she is um, in some ways a, kind of a blank canvas for projection um, because she has been uh, in her career, she's a, she's a diplomat. She's not just a goddess and, a, and somebody who kicks ass. You know, she is a scientist. She is a doctor. Um, she is a, uh, a negotiator. Um, she's an envoy. And um, so she becomes this, this amazing archetype for goodness and for responsibility, for the ability to respond. Because she always can do so, do something. She always is doing something. Um, and that, that makes her such a great paragon. Um, so maybe first, we'll get to see the, uh, Wonder Woman screenplay by Jordan Stratford. That would be, that would be terrific. I would totally sign on for, uh, for, for Wonder Woman. That's, that's the, that's the call I'll take. That's awesome. Who would you want your director to be? Uh, well, you know, the fact that, uh, they, they dropped, uh, Joss Whedon for Wonder Woman, um, was, was a heartbreak. I'd love to see Renity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, you know, and there's a, there's a lot of good people out there, and she does have a lot of story, even even just if they just took the basics and crafted something new. Yeah, and I'd also like to see, um, I mean, there are, there are uh, there's all, been a lot of talented, talent thrown at that particular character at various degrees over the years, and I, I think it's, it's time to really kind of reassess um, the best of it and why we keep coming back to that character where we keep telling those stories and what we want to get out of it. Um, and so there's, there's no shortage of, shortage of creative talent and people who could do an amazing job with it without saying, Oh, okay, well, I guess I was a big fan of the show in the seventies. And so it was, was kind of cute. So let's revisit that. It's like, now let's look at what's really going on with the character. Let's dig a little deeper. Yeah, and and unfortunately, some of the main criticisms are, well, she doesn't have a really good set of villains, and she doesn't have this. Well, some, you know, honestly, if you can't out of out of the pantheon find a villain, then you mean to tell me that nobody can create one? Well, we're the villain. I mean, that's what I think is is so interesting about uh, about Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman got a better better villain than than Batman did. Batman just had the Joker. He just had some, you know, some some psycho. Um, but we're the villain in Wonder Woman. It's it's us. Uh, I, I'm like the only person that liked the little miniseries that came out a few years ago called Amazon's Attack, where they they come into um, and they have a big sort of Armageddon on Washington D.C. Right. I'm like I'm the only person that liked this particular <laughs> story. Like, what's wrong? What does that say about me? I don't know. But um, you know, the, the opposition in Wonder Woman is because she's such a paragon. Um, we're the antithesis. We're the short-sighted, the, the selfish, um, the, the, the greedy, the somebody's suffering somewhere else for our inconvenience. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that is so interesting. Um, so here's this person who's really the, the person that we, that all of us is supposed to be. And the only opposition uh, to that is the fact that we don't actually want to be it. That's cool. Do you have a Do you have somebody in mind that you would you think is the perfect actress? 
Oh, you know that it 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 changes all the time. I think I think it's times I would I would definitely cast her older. Uh-huh. Um, I know that there's always the appeal. It's like, okay, we do a superhero movie. We need to find, you know, some kind of supermodel, leggy supermodel who's, you know, 19 or something. But I, I could, I would, would probably cast her in her mid thirties. I'd want to see somebody with, yeah. you know, some lines around her eyes. So somebody who's seen something, you know? I felt the same way because I felt, you know what? They, they were able to do that with Iron Man and it worked. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you can't tell me that this doesn't work. You can't tell me that you need a 22 year old, you know? Yeah, then you have uh, casting culture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. And it's like, well, we want to make sure that we get three movies. And it's like, yeah. or you might not, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you might reboot it the second you do it, just like the maybe, Hulk. And <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll crowdfund a, a $100 million for, to, to make Wonder Woman you know, the right way. Yeah, I think, I, yeah. trust me, I've seen some fan films that are pretty remarkable. It's like they're these little six-minute trailers, and they're amazing. Perfect. Um, some of the, even the costumes. That's the other thing. Is like, how do you translate the costume? I've seen costumes done well. Mm-hmm. Trust me, it can be done. <laughs> yeah, it can be done without her looking like she's about to go surfing. So I think that um, uh, you know, she's a she's an Amazon. You can dress her like an Amazon. It's, yeah, it's great. She could be dressed properly. It's absolutely fine. Right. Well, she's Wonder Woman. She can wear whatever the hell she wants. Whatever she wants, <laughs> goddammit. And why not just give her a big wardrobe like, you know, the X-Men characters? Right. They, they've all got, like, wardrobes that change. Right. You know? So, all right. Well, Jordan, let's uh, give everybody information about where they can find you, where they can find Wollstonecraft eventually, and information about you to keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, pr- uh, the project is updated at worldofwollstonecraft.com. And uh, I, everything that I'm doing is at jordanstratford.com. Okay. And if, and you, that's your name on Twitter as well. So, But the uh, first book, uh, first Bolson Craft book comes out uh, in bookstores January of 2015 from Knopf, Random Penguin. That's, it's getting longer and longer. Well, it, actually, the uh, Random House merged with Peng, Penguin, and they want to want everybody to call it Penguin Random House. No, we're calling it Random Penguin. Well, Random Penguin is just, yeah, that's what you get, guys. Yeah, no. It's funnier that way. We refuse to play your game. It's Random Penguin. Random Penguin. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Well, Jordan, this is so, so great. And I live, I love the book. Love oh, I'm so glad that you uh, enjoyed it, and thanks for supporting it, and thanks for having me here. And, you know, and this is coming from somebody who doesn't have, you know, eight and ten-year-old kids running around my house. I don't. I just, you know, it was for my pure enjoyment. Oh, excellent. Um, all right, guys, you can, of course, follow me at Elizabeth Amber on Twitter, and everything else is at amberunmasked.com, and that's also where you look on Facebook. It's under Amber Unmasked. So thanks again to Jordan, and thank you guys for listening. Bye.